choir. We have a new addition to the church family. There is a rose on the communion table. That is for James Richard Torbert. He was born this past Monday at Piedmont Hospital. His parents are Tiffany and J.R. Torbert, and his um, older sisters are Ellis and Campbell. And J.R. is here this morning, um, so I guess he needed to get out of the house with the addition of the third child. So, um, J.R., congratulations to you and Tiffany. And um, the grandparents are Jim and Marilyn Torbert, and aunts and uncles, um, uh, Andy and Sarah Torbert, and cousin Susanna, and they're here this morning, so we rejoice in this new addition to the family, a boy to carry on the Torbert name, so that is, um, that is a blessing. Will you uh, join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, as we come to this uh, time and this moment, we come seeking to be more than we are. May we find new insight into these words. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be holy and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So about 20 years ago, the country singer George Strait sang these words. Emmy Lou got caught passing me a note, and before the teacher took it, I read what she wrote. Do you love me? Do you want to be my friend? And if you do, then don't be afraid to take me by the hand. If you want to think this is how love goes, check yes or no. No. <laughs> that is not one of my gifts. Um, listen, Bright, you sing it. You want someone to sing it so much. Check yes or no. Who? Uh, raise your hand if you've written one of those notes, the check yes or no note. Come on, more of you have, I know. I love that song. I think it was so popular because it speaks to that experience we all have. The note passed to our potential first love that would say yes, no, and if we really wanted to hedge our bets, we would put in a maybe, just in case they might consider it but weren't quite ready to make a commitment yet. And we would hope and we would pray and we would beg that the answer would not be no. Because the fear of rejection is a powerful fear. And so in this third week of our sermon series for Lent, Unafraid, we're going to be looking at the fear of rejection. We've looked at the fear of God, the fear of the unknown, and now we come to the fear of rejection. And no one, no one likes to be rejected. And we all fear rejection. We fear that someone will tell us no. But it goes a little bit deeper, that too, in that we sometimes, and, and probably more often than we're comfortable admitting, we are agents of rejection. You know, we have a tendency to reject others based on some ambiguous cultural norm. And so here's what that looks like. We lean on others to determine cultural norms, and then we isolate and we reject those who will not conform or who will not assimilate. And, and the sad thing is that in many ways that our capacity and our willingness, especially in religion, to reject others has become known as one of the traits of the Christian faith. 
And we try our best here to go against that, to proclaim that no, the Christian faith is indeed different, that that's not what it's about. It's about. You read surveys about Christianity and why people want nothing to do with it, and often the number one reason people come back with is they find Christianity and Christians to be too judgmental that they reject too many, that they reject and isolate those who do not conform or assimilate. And it's heartbreaking to read that, and it's striking as well when we consider that the one we follow, Jesus the Christ, spent a great deal of time ministering to those who had been rejected or who had been isolated. Reading through the Gospels, you see that Jesus spent most of his time with people that other people would not spend any time with. Today's text is the perfect example of that. He encounters a woman who has been ill and who has been considered unclean for 12 years. We are told that she has spent all she had on health care. It tells us that the healthcare system has never been perfect, right? Even in Jesus' day. She's, she's literally got nowhere else to turn. She has been turned away. She's been isolated. She's been rejected at every turn until she comes to Jesus. Now take a moment and put yourself in her shoes. We know that that Jesus is loving and grace-filled and shows mercy, but in the back of her mind, in the back of her mind, knowing that this is her last hope, there's got to be that fear that even he might reject her. He's in the middle of a crowd, and so she sneaks up on him, just willing and wanting to get a small touch of his garment. Think about that. She, she's very afraid that the one who might help her, might heal her, might love her when no one else will, will reject her because that's what everyone else has done. And so she sneaks up almost so that he won't even notice her. There's been many experiments done about um, to show us how we use one another to decide what we think is right or wrong or good or bad. The University of Iowa a couple years ago did one such experiment. They took participants and they told them they were taking part in an experiment to determine the reliability of eyewitness evidence. So what we see with our own eyes. But only two-thirds of the participants were actually part of the experiment. The other one-third were there to see if others would go along with false answers that they gave. So this one-third group was going to, on purpose, give the wrong answer. There were two variables that were part of the experiment. Some people were shown slides of suspects for a full five seconds. And evidence suggests that when we see a slide like that for five seconds, it rarely leads to a case of mistaken identity. And then some were also only shown slides and flashes, so they did not get as long of a look. Some in the experiment were told that it was merely a pilot study, and others were told this test would soon be adopted for use by police and in courts, and so it was very important that they pay attention. And the results of this experiment was, were fascinating. 
So when the task was easy, they got a long look at the slides, and people thought it was of low importance, so it was only a pilot study. So a long look and not important, one in three people were willing to abandon their own judgment and go along with the group. So one in three just went along with whatever the group said. When the task was easy and people thought it was of high importance, conformity went down, only about 15%. But what was really fascinating about the study was when the task got hard. When it got harder, people couldn't generally be sure of what they had seen. Conformity went up. They were more likely to go along with what the group said. So groupthink mentality went up. Researchers found that under this condition, people actually became more confident about the accuracy of their answers. So even though they weren't sure, they were more confident because everyone else around them was more confident. So what does that tell us about us as human beings, as a community of people that, that fear in some ways, our desire to fit into the group will drive us to certain conclusions about what is true and will also push us to trust the judgment of others more than our own when making what we know to be important decisions. And so our own fear of rejection, it leads us to abandon our principles and our own uniqueness so that we might fit in. That's how desperate we are to fit in, is we will lean on others' judgment rather than our own. We've seen this throughout history in many different ways. One such area is mental health. The church is finally coming to terms with the idea that ministering to people who struggle with mental health issues is a good thing. We're talking about things like depression and bipolar disorder a little bit more, but for many years we didn't talk about it in the church, we didn't talk about it in society in general because we thought that that was something wrong. We, we felt like it was okay to reject people who might be struggling with these things. And so people would not confront their own struggles. They would not seek the help they need. But now in many ways the church, the church is taking the lead in, in helping people get the help they need for depression and bipolar disorder and other mental health struggles that so many struggle with, something that affects probably all of our families. That's just one example. One example of where we, as the body of Christ, are taking the lead in removing the stigma from something. You see, that's what Jesus did with him. There were no stigmas. For this woman to come to him, there was no such thing as her being unclean. Even though the community at large had judged her to be ill, had judged her to be unclean, had judged her to be an outcast, to Jesus, she was none of those things. She was simply a beloved child of God. And so we wonder what she was expecting to receive when she goes to touch his garment. I've often thought this is a very good analogy for what people expect the first time they walk in the door of the church. What are they expecting to receive? For many, they would answer that question that they were expecting to receive judgment. 
that they needed to believe the right things and do the right things before God's transformation could be offered to them. What is she expecting to receive? Jesus gives us a clue by, as to what we should offer as a church, as people of faith, as a Christian community at large. He offers this woman the, the love of God, God's acceptance, God's embrace, God's healing, God's transformation. And notice there's no conditions on it. There is no test of faith. There's not even a conversation. She simply touches his garment and she receives the gift of transformation. The Gospel of Mark tells the same story and describes her state of spirit this way. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and then told him the whole truth. You see, I think that points to our own need to be seen, to be heard, to be honest with ourselves about our struggles, to be seen by others just as we are. We need places to do that where we do not experience the fear of rejection. Thirteen years ago, Frank Warren began a community art project. The goal was to get 365 artfully decorated postcards that would bear people's secrets. They, this would be an anonymous exercise. They could send in the postcards and include some art with it, and they didn't have to put their name on it. It was a safe space for people to confess or to clear their spirits. He noticed that there was a need, a need in the culture for people to have safe space. And it turns out these postcards were pretty popular. To date, 13 years later, he's received over a 2 million postcards. And there is a website called postscripts.com that you can go to and read what people have said. Some of them are funny. One lady said, I go to Sephora to touch up my makeup with no intention of buying anything. Someone else said, I love the self-checkout at the grocery store. Over the past year, I've saved $500 by ringing up all produce as bananas. <laughs> so there's a little money-saving tip for you. I like to push the buttons on all the singing and dancing toys in the aisle and then run away because I think it's hilarious. None of us like that person, do we? And then there's also the serious. My mom is the reason I don't kill myself, and I know I am her reason too. We've never said it, but we both know it's true. And another, a soldier bearing a flag-draped coffin, pulling it away from a plane. I should have died instead of you, it says. I'm sorry. Another one, to the creators of Vicodin, could I please spend Mother's Day with your mom this year because you stole mine? She was the first person who made me feel good about myself, and I let her get away. Just because you deny the abuse doesn't mean I will ever forget it. Amazing that these postcards come in. People needing to be seen. People needing to be heard. 
You see, this project's become so popular that right now all these postcards are even on display at one of the Smithsonian Museums in Washington, D.C. It tells us that we need to be seen, we need to be heard without the fear of rejection, to be honest with others and with ourselves. And so I wonder if this woman... This one who had been ill, who had been suffered, who had been an outcast for 12 years, what might she have written on a postcard knowing that Jesus was her last hope? What might you write on your postcard? What might you want others to know? And and what way do you need to be seen without the fear of rejection? What would that postcard look like for you? I think for us as a church, when it comes to the idea of belonging, the church has two main callings. And the story of Jesus and this, this woman who was ill, they, they tell us about these callings. The first is that we should say to all that you have a place here. You belong here. And the second is there are no conditions, no conditions on that belonging. There's nothing that prevents any of us from belonging to God and belonging to the body of Christ and belonging to one another. There are no conditions. It's clear from this as Jesus puts no conditions on this person when all she had lived with her whole life was rejection based on some ambiguous condition of belonging. Jesus says those don't matter to God. You always belong. And there are no conditions on that. You see, for too long, we've probably incorrectly believed on both sides. Maybe we've believed it for ourselves. Maybe our Christian institutions have believed it, that someone needs some sort of transformation as a condition of belonging. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say in a very pained way, I'm not good enough to go to church. I need to get my life together and then I'll go to church. I don't think those are excuses. I think that's what we have conditioned and taught people to believe. When in fact the opposite is true, that we are transformed because we belong, because we have been welcomed in the first place. Because someone, some group of people, some community has said to us, yes, you belong here. The Apostle Paul would try to capture this feeling when he would write in one of his letters this very simple piece of advice and truth we love because we have first been loved. We love because we have first been loved. And so we are transformed because we first know that we belong to God, to the body of Christ and to one another. Amen.